0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we reached out across the continent to talk to Dr. Sheldon Ricklin. He's one of two Marshallese doctors serving the Pacific Island community, and he talked with us about the growing number of positive COVID cases among Arkansas's Marshallese citizens, 30 fatalities so far in the Marshallese community of between eight to 12,000. That is in contrast to our 19 fatal cases statewide in Hawaii with our population of more than a million people. Dr. Ricklin is a graduate of the John A. Burns School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii.
1: I had worked actually at Javsum for a while before I got recruited to come to Arkansas, and I've been here for the last four years since Actually, four years ago, July of 2016.
0: Wow! So happy anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hope you had a, a, a quiet fourth, a restful fourth.
1: Uh, it was restful, not too quiet, but you know, I got a chance to spend time with my granddaughter. You know, doing some fireworks.
0: I've been reading about the numbers of. COVID cases among Marshallese in Arkansas, it's really disproportionate.
1: Our active cases as of a week ago or so uh, exceeded 500. And our deaths actually, you know, I think, you know, for the last few days has exceeded probably 30 at this point. There's definitely a lot of risk factors about Marshallese here in Northwest Arkansas. You know, for one, you know, we are considered essential workers for many of our community members, you know, whether it's at the poultry plant, at Walmart, at the airport or at the nursing homes, you know, so, you know, they have to go to work uh, because, you know, they're they're considered essential workers. In addition to that, we definitely have, you know, many of the risk factors when you look at chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, any kind of uh, asthma problems and all those kind of things. And, you know, we definitely have, you know, our elderly who are, you know, part of the multi-generational households in the households as well, too. Uh, So there's a lot of factors that have come into play, and, you know, and we, for the most part, we've been able to, you know, um, try to do social distancing guidelines, and, you know, I think, you know, for many of us, you know, that's, that has been successful in the community, but you know, of course, there are a few others who have not been able to kind of follow the same guidelines as we have.
0: I know of the Memorial Day holiday, there was drive-through testing, there were uh, giveaways of food baskets, and also the forms for the census passed out. It's just a, a way to be able to reach out to the community over there on these really important issues.
1: Absolutely, and you know, we started early, you know, we actually have a Marshallese COVID-19 Task Force that was actually formed either end of March or early April. You know, we, we saw this coming. We saw that, you know, COVID-19 was going to be uh, a challenge for us, uh, and especially our community members. Uh, so we had formed this uh, Marshallese COVID-19 Task Force, which includes the leadership and our council general from our, our, my consulate office here in Springdale, Along with you know several representatives from our nonprofit organizations, whether it's from Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese, Marshallese Educational Initiative, several of our Marshallese liaisons who work at the school systems, some of our you know medical assistants, uh, myself from the UMS campus, and now we also you know we do weekly meetings that includes also reports from the three major medical centers, along with our FQAC that sees many of our Marshallese population here. So, you know, some of those um, initiatives that we've, you know, taken on includes those things that we just uh, mentioned in terms of, you know, face masks and, you know, cloth, face mask drives, making sure, you know, it was in the middle of census, you know, initiative as well, too. Uh, We're also addressing some of the food insecurity needs in terms of, you know, delivering foods to those who are COVID-positive households. So they don't have to go outside the home. We've been working diligently along with the Arkansas Department of Health as well and trying to kind of address their needs as well as we're trying to reach the community.
0: I read also that there was a radio station there in Arkansas that was started a few years ago. You know, how has that been used to kind of educate the community?
1: Yeah, the radio station has been a big asset for us. And, you know, when I first moved here four years ago, I saw that and You know, about a year into it, you know, I have a uh, Marshallese uh, health radio program that I do on a monthly basis that has been in existence for the last three years, talking about chronic conditions and health and messaging and preventive uh, medicine, all in Marshallese. And the Marshallese radio stations, you know, plays Marshallese music, plays Marshallese PSAs. And that includes that, you know, health messaging as well. And since the start of this uh, pandemic and actually the beginning of April, you know, I kind of change gears and just kind of try to address main, mainly, you know, COVID-19 and talk about some of the signs and symptoms and, you know, where, you know, with pregnancy and with diabetes and asthma and some of the guidelines when it comes with George guidelines or funeral guidelines and try to kind of get the message out there. And, you know, I, besides myself, I know at least the Department of Health has also used the radio station, the nonprofits, as, as well as the consulate office has also utilized them. And I think you know, it's, a, it's a, definitely a big asset for the community here because not everybody has Internet connection, but they definitely have the radio connection that they can listen to
0: it's such a valuable tool during this time.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: I I've seen some things, you know, on the internet, members of the community, you know, having Zoom discussions, uh but yeah, to be able to have that FM station to be able to connect people in that way. Wow. I mean, that that's amazing.
1: Yeah, and you know, we, you know, utilize it almost the same way that we use it back home where we would do our public service announcements and service you know for funeral services or any kind of Fundraising efforts or any kind of um, uh, drives that we do for the for the task force members and all that, and you know, including the census and the school system uses it as well as the Department of Health as well too. So it's been great.
0: Now being here in Honolulu, I've been reading about the outbreak of the COVID cases, uh, not just amongst the Arkansas community, but I think also in Spokane, Washington where there is a, a growing community as well.
1: They had reached out to me to, you know, they given that they're dealing with the same kind of similar issues over in Spokane as we are here in Northwest Arkansas. And I've been speaking with their community leaders and the Marshallese uh, employees that work for the Department of Health and actually with the Department of Health uh, team as well, where, you know, I've you know done some videos for them speaking in Marshallese that they've been able to kind of play on that side and, but definitely, you know, you know, we're all on the same boat, so you know, you know, it, it takes a village and several villages to kinda handle this and just kinda how we're trying to kinda do that.
0: Are the Marshallese people working in uh, in uh, plants in Spokane like they are in Arkansas?
1: You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I have never visited them yet over there, but I do know that there are some who actually work at some of the factories. And I don't think there's poultry factory, but I think it's more meat and some of it has to do with like macaroni and things like
0: that. In Arkansas, I know there was an effort to test the workers at the Tyson chicken plant just to kind of get a census to the community spread. Yeah,
1: and you know, and that was one of the push that, you know, the task force has been, you know, asking for since the onset. You know, we knew that, you know, we needed to get testing out there and test the Marshallese community knowing their risk factors and Initially, we, you know, we had you know work with the Department of Health and with the UAMS and one of the medical centers and one of the community health centers as well. And they've gone out to the Marshallese neighbors and done testing. In the beginning, I think it was in early April. And you know, we've done the same kind of push with uh, poultry plants, meat processing plants, and of all the plants here, Tyson, you know, was able to kind of test their team members or their employees. And you know, at least that kind of went through it. You know, we were able to identify many of the cases. And that kind of helps with contact tracing and try to kind of mitigate you know, where we need to kind of focus our efforts. Unfortunately, the other plants have not followed suit in that aspect of it. And but you know, we still continue to kind of make that recommendation.
0: Are there many Marshallese working in those other plants?
1: Definitely. You know, they, besides Tyson, there's George's plant, and uh, there's Cargill and Butterball and other poultry meat processing plants as well. Yes. But I think Tyson probably has the most Marshallese employees uh, compared to the other ones.
0: Is there anything else that concerns you, just as you watch this virus?
1: Besides all the risk that we just about about the members and the committee members and it affecting us, you know. I think I think this pandemic has definitely magnified many of the same issues and the same challenges, you know, that we've always tried to address from the beginning. Whether it's tri- in language translation services or interpretation, and a big one definitely is, you know, access to healthcare for many of our uh, Marshallese and other Kofa citizens in Northwest Arkansas. I think you know we're definitely fortunate here because you know we have a FQAC and community clinic that kind of works like you know on a little like a KK. Or, you know, Kali Plum, I think, you know, many people are able to access that way, you know, with, you know, sliding scale scale services. But, you know, I, I think, you know, just having, not having that access to federal Medicaid program. Just kind of highlights that you know many of them needed to have better management of their medical many medical conditions. So FQACs are federally qualified health centers, and that's you know that's like community clinics, um, that's like you know it's places like KKVA and Calipalama where they address the needs of those who are in need, especially, and they're federally funded program.
0: Right, because otherwise they would have no health care.
1: That is correct. You know, regardless of what people hear, whether it's online, in the social media, or in the news, that everybody needs to take, you know, do their part. They need to follow the social distancing guidelines. They need to wear their face mask. They need to do their frequent hand washing. You know, stay home if they have no reason to leave the house. You know, if, if it's not for yourself, then it's basically for the person next to you, especially our elderly and our kids. And, you know, the, our culture is about the family, and our culture should be Anything that we do, whether it seems like it's not our culture, it really is. It is taking care of our own family.
0: And has quarantine and isolation been... Uh, an issue because you know many of our Pacific Island cultures have extended families. I don't know if they have, let's say, an extra room or another place to go to.
1: Yeah, that's been a challenge for us as well. You know, in trying to you know making sure that your people stay quarantined, and if somebody is positive, and there's more than one you know workers in the household, and there's more than one family in the household, so definitely you know those challenges you know you know come up, and you know we try to you know work with the Department of Health in trying to address those. I know in the beginning, before the starting of opening of the state, the uh, Department of Health has been you know, able to put some of the positive cases in some of the hotel rooms, and they've been monitoring them on a regular basis. I think it's getting a little bit more difficult now as you know, things are opening up and the hotels are looking for more commercial or you know, other, other people who want to you know, utilize their rooms. And the Department of Health actually has other facilities, you know, I know there's a facility that's about at the capital city in Little Rock that they also try to take families if they need to be on isolation, but they provide for all their needs, including transportation, transportation there and back and food and drinks and for the whole time period before they take them back to their households. But I think it's still a challenge for us, and we continue to work with them and trying to kind of figure out ways to address that better.
0: and Are there any other communities that you're aware of where there are large Marshallese populations? Yeah,
1: we're we're all over you know mm-hmm. you know Northwest Arkansas, you know we also have you know certain pockets in the, you know throughout the state, but you know we have Marshallese large Marshallese community in in Ennis, Oklahoma in Indiana as well, in certain parts of Texas, in California, and in Oregon. And, you know, we have, you know, at least one Marshallese or Marshallese family in a state, you know, in all 50 states, but the large pockets of populations are in Washington, Oregon, California. Arkansas, I think, probably has the most, uh, but also with Oklahoma and nearby uh, Missouri as well.
0: Yes, and I also understand there are some in Hilo, the other physician?
1: Yeah, Dr. Wilfred Alec, you know, actually, you know, he lives in Hilo, and, you know, I'm jealous because, you know, that's where I got my undergrad. You know, that's where I went to uh, undergraduate at UH Hilo, and, you know, that's where I'm going to be in biology. But he definitely is there. We also have a large Marshallese population, not just in Hilo, but on, on the Kailua-Kona side as well. But, you know, he's practicing out of the Kaiser Clinic in Hilo. The folks in Kona side definitely are doing more of the coffee part of it, but, you know, the ones in Hilo side are more the families and they've been there longer, I believe. And they work in different parts, including like Walmart and the stores and stuff. It's unfortunate with this pandemic because I think many of us really were pushing for the census 2020. And I think we definitely were much more active this year than previous censuses. And, you know, we I think we we're doing good and, you know, at least trying to get people to get counted. But mm-hmm. This definitely has thrown a wrench into the whole thing. So, you know, we're finding it more challenging than it was before.
0: That was Dr. Sheldon Ricklin, a Marshallese doctor working in the health services program at the University of Arkansas and also in a community clinic in Springdale. And now it's time to hear from the BBC with the latest pandemic news. Israel is forced to reclose its bars, gyms, and public places after a spike in infections. And Paris opens the Louvre uh,
2: after a four-month closure. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 6th of July. I'm Janat Jalil. Israel closes bars, gyms and other public spaces after a spike in infections. Australian officials lock down the border between two states as cases surge there and the Louvre Museum in Paris reopens after four months. Israel has ordered bars, nightclubs, public halls and gyms to close after a sharp rise in infections. Here's Tom Bateman.
3: Israel was seen to have successfully tackled the initial outbreak in the spring with a swift lockdown and effective tracing. But coronavirus cases have surged since the lockdown was lifted last month. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is now warning that the health system could be paralysed without action now. In the occupied West Bank, the big uptick in case numbers has led to a lockdown which was reimposed on Friday. Many cases are clustered around the city of Hebron with two deaths in the last 24 hours.
2: Australia's two most populous states, Victoria and New South Wales, are shutting their joint border as the number of coronavirus infections in Victoria surges. Meanwhile, officials in the city of Melbourne have placed nine public housing estates under complete lockdown after around 30 of the nearly 3,000 residents tested positive. Thanos Sirag, who lives on the estate, says she feels they've been unfairly singled out.
4: We are seen as a lower class, People believe that these buildings are full of immigrants and uh, people that just lower class. And there are private apartments that are right next to us that share confined spaces, such as such as ours in these buildings. And they're not under these strict
2: lockdowns. With more, here's our reporter, Shaima Khalil
4: police forces
5: just showed up at these people's doorsteps. And all of a sudden, they found themselves in full lockdown, no one in, no one out even to get food for their children, formula for babies. All of a sudden, people just felt, well, what did we do wrong? However, I would say the authorities have described, though, the the nine tower blocks as vertical cruise ships, if you will. They said with the cluster of about 30 people or so, Within those towers, the possibility of hundreds of people coming into contact with them, which means they are in an incubation period, is very, very high.
2: Police in Zimbabwe have arrested 12 nurses during a protest outside a hospital in the capital, Harare. Health workers are demonstrating to demand that they be paid in U.S. dollars because inflation of almost 800 percent is eroding their salaries. In Kenya, the President Uhuru Kenyatta has announced a phased lifting of restrictions. Ferdinand Omondi explains.
3: President Kenyatta announced the resumption of movement in and out of the capital Nairobi, city of Mombasa, and frontier town of Mandera beginning Tuesday, allowing free countrywide movement for the first time since April. However, a national dusk to dawn curfew was extended by a further 30 days, as was the ban on social and political gatherings. Local flights may resume from the 15th of July, followed by international travel two weeks later, subject to strict COVID-19 protocols.
2: A bus driver in southwestern France has been declared brain dead after being beaten by several people whom he refused to let on board because they weren't wearing face masks. Local media say the 59-year-old bus driver was repeatedly punched in the assault on Sunday. Many of his colleagues have refused to work in protest since the attack. The US is wrapping up its 4th of July holiday weekend. And while some Independence Day celebrations were dampened by the pandemic, health officials have predicted that gatherings over the past few days could still result in thousands of new cases. Nancy Chen is a correspondent for CBS in New York.
0: In some areas, it almost seemed like celebrations were close to normal, with people not heeding that advice to stay socially distant. Now, this is all coming as new coronavirus cases have spiked some 41 percent in just three weeks alone. Right now, hospitals near capacity in several areas. There are four hotspots in the country that
5: officials and experts are watching right now, California, Arizona, Texas and
0: Florida. In Florida right now, they are reporting nearly as many new cases each day as we saw here in New York City during our peak, and that was in April.
2: The Louvre Museum in Paris has reopened almost four months after coronavirus forced it to close. The Louvre's director, Jean-Luc Martinez, described some of the new restrictions for guests.
6: We've organized a special tour, and reserving a place in it is obligatory. Masks must be worn from the age of 11, and inside we've also made sure, because the museum is very big, that visitors don't cross other visitors by leading them through the rooms in a certain direction, with an entrance and an exit.
2: This is the coronavirus global update.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in Hawaii with new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to continue service for generations to come. Matson.com.
5: Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company, a mission partner of Navian Hawaii, whose services include providing counseling and support to families fighting serious illnesses. More at NavianHawaii.org.
0: This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard History Quiz.
4: (laughs) Backyard
0: History Quiz Whaling ships, primarily American vessels, began arriving in Hawaii in the early 19th century. At that time, whale oil was used for heating, as lamp fuel, and in industrial machinery. Whalebone and baleen was used in women's corsets, skirt hoops, and various other everyday items. Whaling ships tracked and hunted whales around the world in the Japan Sea, the South Pacific, and eventually the Arctic. They frequently stopped in Hawaii to restock provisions, replenish their crews, and transfer their whale oil cargo. Lahaina and Honolulu ports became integral stops for the whaling economy for over 20 years. In the year 1824, over 100 whaling ships stopped in Hawaiian ports, and the Pacific whaling fleet would quadruple in size in those 20 years. The whaling industry brought a lot of change and influence to Hawaii and often generated conflict as ruling chiefs worked to maintain order and establish laws to regulate drinking, gambling, prostitution, and even horse riding on Sundays. Although the whaling industry was flourishing, the whaling captains, even in the Pacific Fleet, were not Hawaiian except for one. What is the name of the only native Hawaiian whaling captain? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. <music>
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com.
0: are back with the conversation you know at protests across the country a strange sight is becoming increasingly common heavily armed protesters with their rifles and tactical gear wearing Aloha shirts HBR's Ryan Finnerty has a story out today looking into the trend so you know Ryan we heard about this a couple of months ago so why Aloha shirts and guns
6: yeah good morning Catherine Uh, this is a trend that's been on the rise for the better part of the last year now it seems like in large part, these men are members of various right-wing militia groups from across the country, and there are hundreds of such groups all over the place, of different sizes, and they all kind of have their own uh, their own set of principles or beliefs. But generally, they tend to be very libertarian, uh, particularly when it comes to gun rights, and they often have a distinctly anti-government worldview uh, and they see or they say that they they see the government particularly the federal government as a, a vehicle for oppressing people or taking away their civil rights and everyone's probably seen videos and photos of armed groups at protests that isn't really new but what we have been seeing more recently is this striking sight of heavily armed men who might normally be wearing camouflage or, uh, or street clothes underneath their, uh, their tactical vests are now wearing brightly colored aloha shirts, uh, and it is really a striking sight when you see it. They are members of these different groups. Some of them are just individuals, but the umbrella term that they have uh, given themselves is the Boogaloo Boys. Um, It's not really an organization, uh, but kind of a loose social group of people who have similar beliefs. Uh, They're typically very pro-Second Amendment, and they share this belief that at some point the government is going to try and take away privately owned firearms and triggering a second civil war, which they call the Boogaloo, hence their name, the Boogaloo Boys. Um, and to get an overview of that term and where it comes from and why these people who believe it have started adopting Aloha attire, I spoke with Reese Jones. He's a geography professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa who studies immigration. And he came across the trend while he was doing research for a book and dug into its origins.
4: It all goes back to a 1984 movie. Um, called Breaking to Electric Boogaloo, uh, which was a complete flop uh, because it was terrible. Uh, but over the years, that film has become a cult classic. Um, and in the last few years, as the internet has become a place for memes and message boards, um, memes about that film had become popular. And it's become a joke because of how bad the film was. At the same time, on those message boards, 8chan, 4chan, Reddit, um, there's also a lot of far-right discussions happening. This is the place where people who have um, extremist far-right views go to talk to each other, to exchange ideas, to share jokes with each other. Um, And another idea that's floating around on those far-right message boards is the idea that the government and liberals are coming to take their guns. Um, And that idea has been fanned by uh, conspiracy theorists' websites like Infowars and Alex Jones, who have called it the second civil war um, and suggested that they need to prepare for the second civil war that's going to be happening and train for that. So as happens on the Internet, those two different ideas have kind of now blended together into a single set of memes, um, where... Uh, breaking to electric boogaloo has turned into civil war to electric boogaloo. Um, And then eventually the idea of this coming second civil war became just the boogaloo. But that also has started to change and and to evolve into different terms for boogaloo. One of those is big igloo, um, which is kind of a cognate phrase. Um, And so you'll see often on far right, Um, symbols, you'll see these igloos on there. And that's because of big igloo, which means boogaloo, which means coming civil war. Um, And then they've also started to use um, big luau as another phrase um, that comes from boogaloo. So they say big luau um, to mean boogaloo, to mean civil war two that's coming. And so you'll increasingly see people at these far-right events wearing aloha shirts as if they're going to a luau because they're going to the big luau, which for them is the coming civil war that's going to happen when people try to take their guns from them.
0: So I'm like shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 a have to admi- web me. I have to admit, you know, when I first saw this a couple of months ago, I thought, oh, hopefully it's just, you know, people who want to stand out in the crowd and wearing a, a bright you know, cheery shirt, but it's really taken on a whole nother life. I mean, what's the reaction been locally?
6: Yeah, I should say that um, one of the gentlemen, uh, he's uh, a member of a militia in Washington State, uh, his name's Matt Marshall, who his photo wearing an Aloha shirt has become really prominent. He told uh, NPR reporter Hannah Alem, who, who reports on the alt-right, that, um, and he's credited for starting this trend by a lot of people, Um, he told her that he did it as a way to soften his image, so actually kind of along the lines of what you were saying, rather than this kind of complex uh, metaphor, nonverbal signal. Um, So, you know, it's like so many of these things in the modern era. There's not just one answer. Um, But in terms of the local reaction, I I was really interested in talking to some people who have made Aloha shirts a big part of their lives and their livelihoods uh, since, this is a, a, a pretty hard left turn, or I guess hard right, you would say, a turn in uh, and, and the purpose of these shirts and what they mean. Um, one of the people I spoke to was Kuhau Zane. He is the, the son of Hilo-based native Hawaiian designer Sig Zane, um, who works for the company Sig Zane Designs. Uh, and I was really interested to hear what he thought, not just about the, the shirts being used in this way um, as a designer, but also as a native Hawaiian, because, these shirts aloha shirts in a lot of the world are called hawaiian shirts and people in hawaii know that they're not uh originally native hawaiian in origin but uh that's, that's not necessarily common knowledge everywhere else so i was curious to hear what he thought about it um from both of those aspects of his life um and he really surprised me and he said that he wasn't that concerned about it and he started by saying that he sees Aloha Shirts is a modern form of native Hawaiian art, and he kind of drew a parallel to ukulele, which was not originally Hawaiian, but was adopted by Hawaiians, and they created this new art form, Hawaiian music, um, from it. And so he said, that's sort of how he sees Aloha Shirts, and that, you know, if you view it as art, this is what happens with art. An artist puts it out into the world, and then Uh, people will kind of adapt it and interpret it in new ways and do unexpected things with it. Um, But he also drew a clear distinction between the shirts that are being designed here in Hawaii and worn here in Hawaii, and these ones being worn by the Boogaloo Boys on the mainland, which are more just tropical-themed shirts. Um, And here's what he had to say about it.
4: I'm not necessarily that worried because you're not changing Hawaii. So they can do their thing, that's cool. If you were to come to Hawaii in that first time and you're to see somebody wearing an Aloha shirt and they tell you the story behind it and it's literally about a mountain that's right behind you, I think that that's an authentic experience that nobody will be able to take away.
6: And I was also curious about the potential business implications, you know, that we have this this movement online to uh, to stop purchasing from businesses that, uh, that don't support certain social values. Uh, and, you know, you could imagine something like that happening with the manufacturers of Aloha shirts by people who don't understand that distinction that Kuhao just outlined. Um, but he said he wasn't worried about that either. He said most of their uh, their market is here in Hawaii, and he doesn't think people here in Hawaii are going to be influenced by these fashion choices that are being made by mostly mainland groups uh, and so he he kind of surprised me, uh, and uh, and wasn't uh, wasn't too concerned by the, the development.
0: Well, good story, Ryan. Really an interesting uh, conversation that people are having around Aloha shirts and Boogaloo boys. Thanks so much.
6: Sure, thing, Catherine.
0: We've been talking to HPR's Ryan Finnerdy. to read his story. Go to Hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat on Hawaii Island, working with individuals to help normalize blood sugar, blood pressure, and other chronic conditions without pharmaceutical drugs. HawaiiNaturopathicRetreat.com.
5: Patients with lung disease are especially vulnerable to infections, including coronavirus, pneumonia, influenza, and more. How has our local community responded to the challenge? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with Val Chang of the Hawaii COPD Coalition about how to stay safe and stay healthy if you have COPD. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, Scheidler.hawaii.edu
0: Our reality check segment today with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at how nurses in our public schools are connecting with students this summer and how they plan to resume services in the fall. Education reporter Suban Lee joins us today. Good morning.
5: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So this story about uh, telemedicine, I didn't realize they were doing that in the schools. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of families might not realize it, but it did launch on May 1st, right when we were in the middle of school closures. And this is a DOE, Department of Ed, partnership with UH Manoa School of Nursing and Digital Hygiene, which is an extension of an existing program called Hawaii Keiki Healthy and Ready to Learn. So what that program does is it places advanced registered nurses in school complex areas around the state, um, there are 13 nurse practitioners based in school complex around Hawaii, and they provide school health-related services to students when they're in school. Now, of course, with schools having been closed in the last uh, fourth quarter of last school year and um, schools likely, um, some schools likely remaining closed for part of the week to students in the upcoming school year, the question is, how do we reach students with health services? Um, thus came about this um, new health hotline and telehealth health service um, line for parents and students.
0: So, how did they get the word out to, to folks that this is, you know, it, it, it's here, it's, you know, ready to activate?
5: Right, right. And I think, um, you know, what's important to note is that um, a lot of um, parents, and a lot of families couldn't reach their general family practitioner during coronavirus. So this is an alternative to getting some basic health concerns met, getting redirected to some services, and of course, nurse practitioners can diagnose conditions and prescribe medicine. So they're trying to use that um, mobile technology, whether it's a cell phone or even a tablet, video conferencing to um, provide those services. So the DOE's In terms of getting the word out, they told me that they were trying to grab parents during some of these meal sites, the grab and go sites, um, flyering, having principals spread the word, because communication really was a big challenge last quarter. So they were just trying to grab families wherever they could. Um, They've published literature on their webpage. The UH School of Nursing has a very helpful guide on their own webpage. And uh, the superintendent of schools um, has also mentioned this new health hotline in her public remark. And this is statewide, correct? This is statewide. So the health hotline is a toll-free number of no cost to current DOE students. And just because it's summer break right now doesn't mean that the telehealth line has stopped operating. There is a It is being stacked right now through July 24th, and we publish that number and the hours of operation at the end of the story. And what, what happens is that someone will call into the health hotline. They'll be assessed initially over the phone by a staffed professional. Then there will be a telehealth visit appointment set up um, at some point in the near future. So they'll get a return call from an actual nurse practitioner. Now what the DOE told me is that they can request to have the nurse practitioner that their student normally sees during the school year return that phone call, or it could be somebody else. But I think it really depends on what the health need and question is and what the family prefers.
0: So now, how did this all get started?
5: Well, it's interesting. Um, the DOE and UH had already been planning a telehealth service um, for some time now. They had already been planning to offer this to families because, you know, as you know, there are only so many health professionals and there's just, you know, tens of thousands of students. So there is a um, there's a gap there as far as, uh, as resources. But I think they wanted to increase the visibility of the Hawaii Keiki program. So from what I understand, the telehealth service had already been planned, but the pandemic really sort of um, upped the ante as far as the time frame goes. So it um, I think they really did sort of work to um, um, speed up the introduction of the service. So it could be in place during school closures, and it launched May 1st. And here we are now, and I believe there will be a, um, a telehealth service um, being offered in the fall as well. You know, with schools coming back, with some students in campus one day, they might be home another day. There's a lot of blended learning models being explored right now. So I think that telehealth service and a health school, school health service will re- will reflect that blended learning model.
0: Okay, will be interesting to watch. But thanks so much, Suvan. Sure thing. Thank you. That was reporter Suvan Lee with today's reality check. To read her full story, go to SybilBeat.org. the early 19th century the first whaling ships arrived in Hawaii over a span of about 20 years the whaling industry would flourish with the Honolulu and Lahaina ports Uh, they were valuable and necessary stops for ships to replenish both supplies and crewmen and to transfer their cargo along uh, their whaling routes now those routes spanned from the Japan Sea to the South Pacific and eventually all the way to the Arctic to date there is only one known native Hawaiian whaling captain in history George Gilly. As the captain of the last Hawaiian registered ship, the Julia A. Long, Gilly navigated Arctic storms and fields of coral and ice to hunt whales during the blubber rush of the 19th century. George Gilly was born on Peel Island in 1840 to Englishman William Gilly and a native Hawaiian woman. And after leaving his home island on a whaling ship bound for Hawaii, George Gilly chose to stay in his mother's homeland and would work his way up ranks to become the only known whaling captain of native Hawaiian ancestry. And congratulations to Kiana from Hilo. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Scaled-down city summer fun program opens today on Oahu. Now for countless summers, storyteller Jeff Gear has been part of that program. With so much uncertainty in the planning, Gear opted to go virtual, teaming up with the University of Hawaii's Outreach College.
7: I've been telling stories to kids in summer fun playgrounds, sweaty and hot, in cafeterias and under trees and next to oceans and in sweaty rooms for 30 years. It's like part of my anatomy. When summer comes, I start looking at kids in a whole new way, and my mouth starts to water because I love, love, love to tell them stories. And this uh, summer with coronavirus uh, put two different scheduling uh, options into work, and all of them got canceled, so now I'm on Zoom. And I've come to understand that the city and county Honolulu Department of Parks and Recreation has no computers which can accommodate Zoom interesting. Uh, Pathetic. (laughs) So that means the kids don't get what I intended for them to get, which is a story at 930 every morning.
0: Okay, so how are we getting around that?
7: Well, I'm inviting the community. Humans with ears are my target audience who are stuck at home and want to hear a story. So on Tuesday the 7th, 14th, and 21st, those are stories for little kids. On the next day, the Wednesdays, the 8th, the 15th, and 22nd, they're adventure stories and folk Folklore, folktales, and on the 9th, sixteenth, and twenty-third, which are Thursdays in July, it's spooky guy, real Hawaiian spooky tales.
0: <laughs> okay, so it's basically uh, you need to
7: get people to listen,
0: right? No, but the, you need to vent your energy because <laughs> you've got <laughs> lots of energy to uh, <laughs> expend. Well, that's
7: not a that's a given. Uh, <laughs> who wants to see a boring storyteller? But. The question then for Zoom is, and for the listening audience, is how can you connect in? Well, the Outreach College at the University of Hawaii, I pitched it to them and they said, that sounds great. We'd love to tech host it. So by giving them an email at csinfo at hawaii.edu, just send them an email and tell them what you want to listen to Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. They'll basically put you on the, the, la- the landscape a half hour before the show. You get a, a link, and you listen to a Zoom show every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the 7th through the 25th, 23rd.
0: So they, they'll get an invite.
7: You get an invite from the Zoom. You, if you don't know how to do that, it's not very hard. You can even look. download the program in, like, a, a minute. It's so easy. Every kid who goes to school now knows how to do it. Even parents can learn it. Even I learned it.
0: And so uh, basically then uh, if uh, you're a parent and you've got a kid that is uh, bored? Yes, I at
7: home. <laughs> you want him to hear a story? Sure, I, I'm doing it. All you have to do is send them an email, and they'll put you in the registry, and they'll send you an email at nine o'clock, ready for the nine thirty show. It's nine thirty every morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday through July, and you get to listen to Mr. Jeff tell stories.
0: Okay, so it's kind of like sitting around the campfire, but uh, uh, story hour. It's a
7: temporary campfire, mm-hmm. and I can tell you that sometimes it gets to be very beautiful, moving, and hilarious. Uh, Zoom really can work with storytelling.
0: Now, I know you've had a couple of uh, irons in the fire, and you were working on a project when we last talked about uh, shadow puppets.
7: I love shadow puppets. Uh, in fact, I've delivered them in the summer fun because I got bored of talking and not having pictures. But it's awfully hard to do that on Zoom because you need more people and more eyes and a better camera, and it washes out. The light is too strong for the Zoom uh, cameras and the, the the computer graphics so this time around I'm just going to do storytelling
0: but uh, basically you just want the kids to have that experience during summer fun And
7: those no, stories bring people together uh, to laugh and to cry and to go whoa is healing and to do it as a community and to do it even over your laptop I guarantee you Catherine people on Zoom come together and feel magic of story I've seen tons of it it really can work and I'm going to do it for our community here in well actually all of Hawaii and even nationally I'm getting uh, invitations and getting people reserving stuff from India and I just got one from Iceland
0: Wow okay so it's really broaden your reach instead of just the little neighborhood uh, summer fun program in Manoa
7: yeah The whole world can tune in. All they need is
0: a link. And you just did a thing with storytellers from around the globe.
7: The National Storytelling Network uh, had a virtual conference, which I bugged them into doing. And I included 15 international sessions. And it was a blast. And again, a lady in Honduras talking on her iPhone, quietly talking to me about a story about the princess. Magic. Magic. (laughs) story it's not even language it's not even image it's the story inside your head that the words create communion
0: and it's wonderful because you're going to share that communion with the whole world
7: anybody who wants to send an email (laughs) and it's free it's free it's absolutely free I thank the outreach college at UH for that and for them helping to make it happen on zoom csinfo at hawaii.edu. Send them a note right now.
0: Okay, and then if by chance people can't do some or all of them? Is yeah, there... they can
7: choose what they want. I can send you a, a notice and you'll post it and then they can look at the, all the options, you know.
0: But any chance of maybe listening to them again in a podcast somewhere?
7: You know, he sends me the recording because Zoom can record anything they do. And if you've signed up and I have your email, I'll, I'll post them on YouTube and uh, sure, anybody can listen.
0: So now are you doing this live? Are you performing these things live or are I'm they I'm performing
7: recorded? them live. They're recorded. And then he sends me the recording. And then I post it on YouTube for anybody who wants to listen later on. But for that, you have to send an email to me, jeffgear1031 at gmail.com.
0: Okay. All yeah. right. But otherwise, you'll be live and in action Tuesday, live, Wednesday, Thursday. You know, I'm playing
7: with how can I go down, down into the mountain with an evil mountain spirit. I, I'm going to go under my desk with my camera and change the lighting. <laughs> I can't wait to do drama with Zoom.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> Mr. Jeff Gear. This is a delight. HPR uh, rocks. Okay. All right. Thanks so <laughs> much, Jeff. Aloha. And that was storyteller Jeff Gear, who has migrated his story hour normally offered at Summer Fun online. The series starts tomorrow and runs through July 23rd. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we hear about how our local canoe clubs are adapting to COVID times. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at hi conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.